So this one is a fun one. This was an unexpected one. I watched this as it was happening. (laughs) So the other day, uh, I had a new book out, and Victoria Schwab, who also writes as V.E. Schwab, has these amazing Saturday afternoon Instagram lives with writers that she calls No Right Way, right, W-R-I-T-E. And they're always at 3 p.m. Eastern on Saturdays on her Instagram. And if you are somebody who's interested in just listening to writers talk about writing or or if you're a writer who's interested in craft, these are great conversations. And she sort of ranges all over with um, who she has on. Sometimes it's YA, sometimes it's middle grade, sometimes it's romance, sometimes it's fantasy, sometimes it's, you know, literary fiction. It's sort of, it really is a very cool kind of far-reaching thing. Anyway, um, I did an hour-long conversation with her for one of these, and it was so much fun. And I had such a good time talking to another writer about writing and about romance, because Victoria doesn't really write romance. She writes, um, if you've never read her, although many of you probably have, she writes um, adult, middle grade, and YA, often fantasy. And her new book, which is on sale October 6th is called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, and it's coming from Macmillan. And I'm just got, Jen doesn't know this. I'm reading the first know, like, the tagline Ooh. to her. France, 1714. In a moment of desperation, a young woman makes a Faustian bargain to live forever and is cursed Yikes. to be forgotten by everyone she meets. Yikes on bikes. That sounds amazing. So I have it on my Kindle. I'm taking it to the beach. I'm going to read the shit out of it. Um, (laughs) And we are really excited because Victoria uh, has given us permission to take the audio from my conversation with her um, on No Right Way and put it up for you guys so that you have something to listen to this week. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear two writers talk. Not just, and the thing that I thought was, I really liked was Sarah and I back channel a lot about like the business of writing, of publishing, but we don't really talk about it on the Unfaded Mates too much. And one of the things that I thought was really cool about that conversation is a lot of that talk was like really explicit. And, and I thought that was, I just found it to be really fascinating. And I bet our listeners will feel the same way. Yeah. And you'll hear in this conversation that I said, hey, will you come on Faded Mates? And she said, I definitely will. So we're doing it for sure. All right. Excuse me. Oh, I got my box wine ready. Getting my boxed wine. That is right. It is this kind of day. It's a box wine day. Hello. This wine, Drosty Hoff, uh, <laughs> uh, Chardonnay, costs a grand total of three ninety nine euros for the entire box. Found it in my parents' house, and it just felt like a box of white wine kind of day. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? Where are you coming from? Where are you tuning in from? I got an actual light so you can see my face instead of being in a dark cavern. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and put the wine right here because I feel like I might need it again. If they made box whiskey, Counting Owls, I would be, I'd be set. I would be set. Also, they're euros because I am in France still. 
I am here still. Vancouver, Ireland, oh, Edinburgh, oh, I miss home, I miss home. Northampton, it's so nice to see you all. I'm so excited for my guest tonight, Sarah. I uh, decided to get started a couple minutes early so that people could get settled and so that I could get my boxed wine. Zoraida Cordova! For anyone who doesn't know, yesterday was Zoraida's birthday. One of my favorite humans in this entire world, and she's two weeks older than I am, a week and a half older than I am, but send some love. Also, I'm not saying how much of this box wine I have already had to drink. It doesn't matter. It's wine, and every whiskey drinker knows that wine is practically water. Um, Belgium, Brazil, oh my goodness, Spain. Oh, it's so good to see you all. Um, as I said, I'm so excited for my guest tonight. I have romance author queen Sarah McLean, and I cannot wait to talk with her. We're just getting set up here. I hope you all have a drink. So much Brazil, hello. There we go, hold on. Hold on, please. I'm getting myself ready. Let's see. Where's Sarah? Sarah! Hi! Hi! <laughs> I um, came on, as you were saying, romance author queen. So yes, it's that a good, was delightful. It's a good place. Also, <laughs> just so you know, tonight I am drinking a box of Chardonnay. It's, well, I mean, that's the right choice for me, I feel. Also, I poured your wine into a glass. I love it. It's $3.99 <laughs> for the entire box. Bless Europe. Bless it's them. It's classy. It's classy. Yeah. I want everyone to know how classy it is. Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm the box wine of literature. So <laughs> it works out. We're in the good. So what kind of wine have you got tonight, Rosé? It's whatever Rosé was in my fridge. I wish I could Perfect. be one of those people who cared. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not either, clearly. But my box is, it's a French box of wine. So I feel like... There, well, then it's classy. It's extra classy. <laughs> Oh my you know, and then there are those people who say like, oh no, box wine is fine now. And I mean, great. They sell it here in France and it costs- Wait, you're in box. France? Yeah, so I normally live in Scotland. But I know. My parents live in France and I came down here the day that the lockdown started. And so- Oh my I, God. Somehow I've here. missed this in the, I've been watching these yeah. videos, but I didn't know you were in France. Yeah, so I'm in like the French countryside, and the fact that oh, they, they, well, sell, that's nice. they sell wine here in a box, it's it's allowed, I think. Well, if you're going to be somewhere for lockdown, it feels like the French countryside is not the worst place. It is definitely not the worst. What's so funny is I'm so much a whiskey snob, but if you put any other... I've been watching you. I whole, um, what do you want? You were, re I've been watching you finish that bottle of Rider's yeah, Tears. It's here. Well, I've been drinking this Oban 14. Oh, the Oban. But, you know, it was really hot here this week. And the thing about the white wine is no. it, I kind of feel like it's not real alcohol. Yeah. Such a low percentage. And it, I just was like, you know what? I feel like a box wine girl this week. So this, I, is, I'm for this it. is in no way a reflection of the romance genre or how I felt about it compared to like. I feel like we're all for it. It's fine. But I do want to. <laughs> On behalf of the romance genre. <laughs> but I am excited to talk to you about the romance genre. I, I've been excited. Also, there's a fly and it's like somewhere. But if you see me, like, it's not just that Wait. I'm extremely distractible. I just don't want it here. Anyway. <laughs> 
I love but it. I'm excited to talk to you about romance specifically because what I love is looking on your site, I believe it calls you like not a, a representative of the romance genre. What did it call you? An advocate. An advocate. A romance advocate. Isn't it a shame that we need those? I but in fact, it. we do. I and, love it. Uh, yeah, I started writing romance right at the tail end of like, romance is the worst. Nobody yeah. should ever talk about it in public. Yeah. Nobody should be proud of writing it or reading it. And certainly nobody should ever like consider it an actual form of craft or art. Oh, those beautiful genre. Yeah. Well, you know, you know. So when um, but I think this? we when get it, it just a touch. I started writing. I wrote my first, my first romance came out in 2010. I have a YA that came out in 2009, but I, yeah. So, um, so like, I feel like all genre gets painted with this broad brush, but romance gets it, you know, extra. Oh, a lot. For reasons, mainly the patriarchy, but other, <laughs> but other reasons too, like sex on the page and yeah. A lot of feelings, like feelings in yeah. general are a problem. Um, so that was 2010. And then there was this kind of explosion in 2010 to 2012 mm-hmm. of, um, well, actually sort of really driven by Twilight, which came earlier, but then um, Twilight begot Fifty Shades. Mm-hmm. And then nobody could ignore romance yeah. anymore. So um, people started asking a lot of big questions about whether or not Fifty Shades could be sort of, was representative of the genre and was it the first romance novel, you know, ever. Oh, that was (laughs) my favorite. Watching that argument go down, people were like, well, but but like there hasn't been any romance like this or that that was- These books don't exist. And all of the romance authors just being like, gee- Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for Hi. all of that erasure. Yeah, like billions of dollars just over in the corner, like, Hi. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's what I want to talk today a lot about the history of romance. I want to take advantage of your of your knowledge about this because, because you are an advocate, but also like I know you're a really great entry point of conversation for people that maybe still have a lot of those mm-hmm. uh, built-in notions about what a romance is. Because I get it. I, I get it. I mean, I I talk to my my husband, obviously hears me do this all the time. And he says, you know, constantly, he's like, it's those covers. It's the covers. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, when you think about romance and all you can think of is like Fabio on a cover uh-huh. somewhere, which a lot of people, I get it. Yeah, I mean, it like, he was a market. superstar. And yeah. like, and I think, you know, the covers have a lot of power. Mm-hmm. to readers i mean you know exactly what yeah. you're getting when you see that cover and that's good for readers yeah. right i mean they don't want to romance readers know exactly what they want and they want it when they want it mm-hmm. um, because it takes them you know they read a book a day yeah so they don't want to mess around with yeah. coded anything so i get it that the the misconception outside of romance can be oh well these books are just like trashy mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, that's the, that, that's the beautiful thing. It, it's, I think it's weird because at those say, on one hand, it's a genre that wears itself on its sleeve and that doesn't, you know, hide behind pretensions. And right. on the other hand, that 
is what people then weaponize against it to to not take it seriously. Yeah. I mean, it's the, like, romance readers and writers are really proud of the fact that there are feelings and emotions and, you know, sex on the page in romance. It's hard to write a great sex scene. It's hard to write a book that tells a story, keeps readers turning pages, moves the plot, makes two people have feelings and also turns on a reader. Like, can I talk? I know it's three o'clock in the afternoon, but it's not where you are. So like, um, you know, that's hard to do. And when it's done well, it's a craft. And I think that every subgenre has elements of its craft, which, which like are honed most precisely into not even into tropes, but into elements that you understand what your readers expect. Sure. You know? Fantasy does it, mystery does it, thriller does it, romance Absolutely. does it, why does it? We have an understanding of the components that are expected of us. And then it's our goal to, to subvert and play with those components as well as providing them. Exactly. And I think that also one of the one of the biggest sticking points for readers outside the genre for romance is um, the happily ever after, which is the only rule, right? The covenant that romance writers have with their readers is that at the end of this, whatever the wild story is, whatever the roller coaster we're putting you on um, is, by the end, these two or three or four or however many people are going to be together and they're going to be happy forever. Like, absolutely. And when you close the page, it doesn't matter how far into the future you imagine them, they are happy. Yeah. And what do you think, think, do you think that there's a, I feel like one of the weird biases against romance is the speed of the consumption. Like, this is like a weird thing. Like we talk about. Yeah. Kind of, oh, that's there, interesting. Yeah. Self-fulfilling expectation of quantity because romance readers are voracious and they consume very quickly, it, it creates a market in which romance writers are expected to produce yep. as rapidly. And then the rapidity of that production becomes a point at which people hold against them. How can they, they be say, good? How can it be good if you're producing on this yeah. extreme schedule? Because we also start then fetishizing, right? We fetishize the books that take a long time. We fetishize, you fetishize the, the artists. We said. Yeah, we fetishize that. We fetishize the the concept of the muse, mm -hmm. which is bullshit if yeah. you have to produce two or three books a year, right? Like, you don't, I don't have, to, I mean, I'm a really slow writer and I write a book every, I write a full length book every 10 or 11 months. And then I write uh, somewhere in there, I write something short. Yeah. Um. So I produce two things a year and look, the reality is like, I don't have time to sit around and wait for my muse to show up. Yeah. Like I have to sit at the desk and do the work. And I think, um, the, the biggest lie we sort of tell ourselves about artists. And I think we tell ourselves this lie as writers that like, there is some kind of magic to it. And there are, there are people who, who absolutely they say their characters talk to them and they sure. you know they write you know whatever it takes to get words yeah. on the page is how I respond to that but like the idea that writing or any kind of creativity is magic in some way takes away the kind of honor of the work I which is say, you know important. away from the work and also for those of us doing it as a profession is like not a realistic thing if I like, it is really beautiful that there are authors out there who ha have the luxury of taking five to ten years uh, yeah. to write a novel. But if I don't publish a novel, I don't eat. You know, I don't get to pay my bills. I don't get to do these things. And so, and I think that... But that's uh, true. Of 
Yeah. It's of all genre, right? Like aside from the like the examples which we hold up as like the special book that sells so many copies that the Mm -hmm. author never has to write again. The vast majority of us, we exist on a schedule that is fit to our industry. Yes. For romance authors, it's a different schedule than for literary fiction authors or for, you know, YA is a different schedule from science fiction and fantasy. But right. We have to be honest about the business element of it that, like, you are expected to produce. Yeah, well, this is why I was so excited to do this this Instagram with you because I feel like often when you have a book out, people want to talk about the magic right? Like, let's talk about it finished. Let's talk about, you know, how it all came together in this, like, beautiful, magical thing. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, and I don't know how you feel, I don't, I'm curious to know what your process is like, but when I get to the end of a book, I'm, like, so exhausted, and, like, I'm, like, I don't know, I don't know what this book is. Yeah. And then when I sort of think about it later, I can't remember writing it ever. Oh, and like, it's a, a weird emotional distance happens. Yeah. By the time you get to the end, first of all, you're not quite sure how you did it. And then you're also not sure you can do it again. And you're no, also- Every book is like that for me. So close to the product at that point that you have none of the distance. No. Um, and I think there are two kinds of writers. I think there are writers who are so close to the product and have none of the distance and think it's great. And then the other, which is, and they just are sure it's garbage. I happen to be item B, and that's I, I terrible say, too. I'm so. sure it's garbage until I get distance from. So I want to make sure that we we I, there are several things I want to cover about yes. how you write, what you write, the process. First of all, we have to, and not first of all, later on we will have to talk about naming conventions, like for the titles, because like I can't handle it. Like I love the titles of oh, your books. the titles of my books you yes mean. Yeah, yeah like because it's it's i'll tell it's the story art form into it unto itself within the romance genre well thank and you you're <laughs> like a pun queen um we're gonna get to all that because i see a lot of comments of people asking about the process but first i want to talk about you i i, ah, I try to start these conversations with yes. the question of like your origin story can you Tell us a little bit about how you got here to be yes. one of like the preeminent romance authors. That's such a weird thing, but yes, I can. Um, I am not. Whenever I when I sort of think about identity for myself, I'm not a romance writer. I'm a re- romance reader. I've been re- reading romance since I was ten or eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, when I um, found romance, my my sister who is ten years older than me was like hoarding her harlequins under her bed, and we shared a room. And she went off to college and like during her college experience, I found her stash and just started reading and I never looked back. I mean, I have always, I've always been a romance reader. Like as far as I'm concerned, if a book doesn't have a love story in it, I don't care. Like I don't, I don't want to throw it out, (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, which is why most of my experience in school with like canonical literature did not work for me because, um, so I have read romance. I mean, I still read about a book a day. It's actually mm-hmm. slowed down since quarantine. Um, and I, and so it's easy for me to advocate for the genre and to recommend books to people and tell people and like basically be a book, um, just a book machine for people because I've read a ton. I mean, I calculated it and I've read, you know, more than 12,000 romance novels, I think, in my life. Jeez. And so like... So when you think about it that way, like the fact that I write them is really secondary. Like I've written a fraction of books compared to the, all the ones that I love. Well, know? no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna diminish your comment, um, but I am gonna but say the... I am. I, you are 
you are a professor in a sense of what you're writing. Like you, you study, you are a student yes. and a technician. That's the job for me. Yeah. Like if I could do all of that and get paid, yeah, I probably wouldn't write. <laughs> like, I, like if I could just talk about romance all the time, I have a podcast um, yeah. that's almost two years old called Faded Mates. And it's basically every Wednesday, we just do a deep dive on romance, what it means, how it's written. We read some of the books that we think are the best in the genre and talk about them and really unpack them. Um, And that work is so much, so fascinating to me. And I feel like I learn every time I read a book or read a romance. Um, So that's my, my origin story is as a reader. Mm -hmm. And then I live in New York City. And I, when I first moved here, I made a bunch of friends. And when you live in New York City, and I, at the time, worked for a, like, very boutique literary publicity firm that never touched a romance novel ever. And I would hide my reading because I thought, because I knew my boss would, my boss from that job still to this day kind of, like, side-eyes the job, um, my job now. And um, so I hid that I was a romance reader and I did like lots of really like impressive, I worked with lots of like impressive literary authors, but I met a lot of people in publishing and then YA kind of exploded and I was out for a drink with friends and they were like, and I said, you know, I really feel like I could write one of these books. Like, I feel like I have, I, I got this. <laughs> and a friend of mine was like, well, I dare you. And I had had like just enough alcohol that I went home and I wrote the first chapter of the season. Yeah. Um, and then it was just to prove that I could. It was like a fun thing to do in the afternoon, in the evenings when I got home, you know, I would walk the dog and then like, right. And um, then I sold the season which was amazing, mm-hmm. but I, you know, this is really inside baseball for listeners, but like I signed a terrible contract cause I didn't have an agent. And then I was like, well, I can't write another YA. I was very locked in um, by my contract mm-hmm. and I didn't really want to write another YA. I wanted to write sex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I went off and this was before, you know, Sarah J Moss and others like made sex. Okay. On the pages yeah. in YA. Um, and so I wrote Nine Rules to Break When Romancing a Rape, which was my first historical, my first romance. And also, like, I was actually talking about this with somebody the other day. I basically, like, opened a vein of my id. <laughs> and then I, I just, like, that. poured my id onto the page, you and know? wonderful. <laughs> well, like, thank your you. Id, your id is wonderful. I have to tell you, before <laughs> I went, like, my mom... I is my here, you know, I'm yeah. living with my parents. And when I told my mom who my guest was this week, she was like, I have her books. And she oh. was her Kindle and she had like all of the, oh, yay. All of the <laughs> Romancy the Rake series. And I was just like, I, I know I do too. And I'm not even a huge romance reader, but I found those books, friends of friends who yeah. recommended them. And we it have felt a lot like, of mutuals. You yeah. Know, yeah. So. And it felt like you just tapped into everything that I loved. You know, yeah. so that passion came through immediately on the page. It was fun. Well, I'm really glad. I mean, I talk a lot about uh, that book. You know, publishing is, you know, one part hard work, one part luck. Yeah. And, um, you know, and probably a little bit of talent. And the reality is, like, luck had a big big role in my career because I published that book while Borders still existed (laughs) like right before ebooks exploded like it sold it was in print like that book was in print and it had a massive print run and it was like the last 
mm-hmm. book, uh, the last, certainly the last like historical romance, like through the door. It introduced you to a much wider audience. Yeah, it was just after. the perfect, that book came out at the exact perfect time. Mm-hmm. And then the whole industry, I mean, what's amazing is at the time, the whole industry kind of like imploded yeah. and all the big stores closed and and like somehow I had survived that. I mean, that was, uh, it was a massive hurdle. And I do think something that we don't talk a lot, but we talk about luck a lot, but we don't talk about timing in the sense that like, we are in a constantly shifting dynamic that, that where you can't depend on anything, you know, like you depend on a bookstore and then the bookstore leaves, you depend on an avenue, a market, like things are continuing. It almost feels a little bit like collapsing universes. Like the, like a star is just continually exploding and you hope that you time it right and sometimes the things are so out of your control like you just like coronavirus yeah exactly and so you're just like well i guess i was braced to have a book coming out this year in an election year i did not brace to have a book coming out this year in an election year and coronavirus year and like everything else and you're just like okay well (laughs) i guess this is life now (laughs) yeah but yeah you made it through the door and you got through like right oh yeah like and I could feel like the wind in my skirts right like (laughs) as the door slammed behind me and like now it is so much harder it's so much harder to like become a name in romance now because the moment the door closed the door the, the door closed in traditional and like opened yeah. every like doors windows like the roof came off in in indie and so like ask, how do you because you come from traditional and yeah. obviously there's like romance more than any other genre i feel like you have traditional indie and hybrid and is there like a continuous pressure to move from one space to the other we i talked about it recently um on another one of my interviews on how do you choose and what the importance of traditional like what the advantages of traditional are but as someone in right. the romance space is it a kind of a continuously shifting conversation for you? I think it's shifting in the sense that I think there are a lot, you know, I have self-published, I've, I've indie published a couple of things. I've, or no, I've indie published one thing and okay. I'm currently working on something else. And both of those situations were a situation where like a group of friends got together and said like, what if we all write this? Yeah. And then, um, you know, so the first was a Christmas novella that we actually, we put a, a Tessa Dare and Sophie Jordan and Joanna Shoup and I put together two Christmases ago. Uh-huh. And then, um, so that was, a, and part of it was just like, yeah, I was like, let's do it. Cause I'm curious. Like, yeah, I feel behind the eight ball cause I've never self-published anything. So I don't know. And then suddenly I really had a good idea of like mm-hmm. what the money looks like, what the, I mean, like this is, you know, again, very sort of how the sausage is made, but like the, how all the streams work, how all the production works, timing, yeah. et cetera. So that was really useful just in terms of knowing like the job, when you, when you talk about it, the way you just talked about it, yeah. like as a career, as a job, knowing all the, all the moving parts is something that we don't, we get hidden. Traditional publishing hides a lot of those moving parts from us. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, and I think in romance, because we move so quickly, right. We're like the canary in the coal mine of, of publishing. Mm -hmm. It's so essential that somebody like me who like, I mean, I'm in this, right. I've been doing this for 11 years. I quit my day job. Like, I need to publish. It's like yeah. publisher perish for me out here. 
But do you um, so feel I need to understand. like it's almost that romance splits into two? It splits into traditional and, and indie because they feel like such different markets. They do. Um, I think different readers, different. I think readers, traditional readers are typically very traditional readers. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that um, that was even more the case a few years ago. Now I think people are really opening, I think, especially things like uh, the most recent conversations that are being had across publishing about racial disparities and yeah. the way traditional publishing kind of gatekeeps um, marginalized authors. Yeah. Is I think people are paying closer attention and I'm seeing traditional readers, readers who I know like typically only buy in a bookstore, mm-hmm. really trying to think about how they can diversify their reading. And I think these conversations in the world are helping traditional readers really like branch out and see yeah. what else is there because romance has, it's such a huge pool. Yeah. And it's, it's so big and it's so, big. so voracious. It's like, we have to constantly reinforce that publishing is not a zero sum game, that there is room for these stories. Yeah. And I feel like pub romance is even, even larger. As you say, the average reader reads a romance novel in a day or two days. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, the, it's a field in which there is just always always space and always oxygen and it's important to make sure that there's space for all of those voices and yeah it it feels wonderful to have those opportunities yeah and we're even seeing movement i mean for a long time in indie bookstores you know independent booksellers across the country which is not touch romance at all. I mean, it was, it was verboten. Didn't even have a section in the stores most of the time. It was like a couple. <laughs> no, and many still don't. But the ones who ha- have embraced romance are now really starting to embrace even um, independently published yeah. romance, which is That's huge. great. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I walked into a store, I was, was signing books at my local <laughs> bookstore last week and they had, you know, a number of independently published yeah. romance on the shelf. So that's amazing. It's all moving. So... From a craft perspective, though, I just, like, really, I want to know how do you, like, I ask this because, I, I mean, I have fantasy authors on here, I have YA authors, I have realism authors, like, how, where does it start for you? Like, where does, where does, how do you get from idea to page? Does it start with a crux of the relationship? Does it start mm-hmm. with the tension or the conflict? Talk to me about how yes. you get from zero to um, the romancing the rake or the rogue not taken, sure. you know? It's always character for me first. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's because romance is really, I mean, we say all books are driven by character, but it's not really yeah. true. Um, I think rom- I think books that are driven by a human emotion, by emotion in general, um, tend to be really character driven. Mm-hmm. Um, by, and that's not to say that the others aren't, but it's, they have to, if the character is yeah. not there, then there's no book there, right? I mean- It's all about interpersonal. <laughs> Plot in romance is conflict in romance. Like all of that is just, it's just what Jen, my podcast host would call fossils, right? Like extra stuff that (laughs) is going to move the characters forward on their journey toward love, which is ephemeral, right? Like we, we can't touch you. We can't, we don't know. We, we have to prove romance novelists have to prove love and love can't be seen. Right. So for me, it's always character. It's always a character who is desperate for a thing, whatever that thing is. And then the second character gets built in. Usually, it's rarely both of them at the same time. Usually, it's like, usually it's the heroine. Mm-hmm. And I can see what the heroine wants. And then I start thinking, the moment I have a crystallized character, I start layering conflict. And usually that's like 
severe internal conflict. Yeah. I mean, right. Like I love, a, for me, I, I write, um, you know, always write heroes and heroines. And like, for me, the heroine is always sort of really crystallized and the hero is immediately just like broken. The idea is like, I'm going to crush him under her boot by the end and then rebuild him. And so that all, all of that is just conflict over like layered in constantly. And there is, never too much conflict for me. Like, as far as I'm concerned, if you have a big idea and you think like that might be too much, like put that in. Um, I call that taking the finger and like, just like cut the hand, cut the whole hand off. If yeah. I feel like you have so that's to. like the trope that speaks to you or the structure, the construct that speaks to you is the, is the broken love interest and yeah. the deprived heroine right the heroine yeah i mean missing usually the heroine usually my heroines are incredibly driven like the heroine is always proactive or in my mind like in the best romances she's always proactive so she knows exactly what she wants but he's in the way got it and i mean this is true like whenever you when you write when anybody writes you know when thriller writers for example write like the, the villain is in the way yes so sometimes i give a workshop on conflict um and sometimes I get asked to give it outside of the romance genre. And I, when I do that, I always do it as, as um, hero villain, as the love story, because a hero and a villain are a love story too, yeah. right? So um, ultimately they end up together and one of them is destroyed. <laughs> I love the way of thinking of that because we're so often act like protagonist, antagonist, and uh, hero love interest are different structures but they don't have to be structures. exactly the same just a very different ending exactly yeah. and looking at the arc from antagonism into interest antagonism into camaraderie or into romance or lust or whatever it is these are following the same highly compelling arcs regardless mm -hmm. of whether we're talking hero villain or hero love interest or right. villain love interest or like whatever those dynamics are we have to think of them in the less even though we're talking about romance we have to think of them in the less gender terms and the more archetypal terms and rather yep. just like think about i mean my favorite trope is obviously like hate to lust like i, mean, I love or like hate to hate the same person on this like you hate somebody else like but, <laughs> but i think antagonism is the sexiest thing there is of course it, it is strong energy it's conflict. I mean, conflict is what moves the pages forward. So when I talk, um, you know, my, I've said this a thousand times, but it bears repeating. Like if it takes you longer than six hours to read one of my books, I've done something wrong. <laughs> like the goal is yeah. for you to not put the book down. You cannot put it down. And in order to do that, you need a strong, a strong character. You need a conflict for days yeah. like that readers believe and are invested in. And you need, like, obviously a strong authorial voice, but that's secondary well, to the other stuff. And it's so important to remember, right? The opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is apathy. Yeah. So as long as we're maintaining these strong emotions, then, I mean, that's how you end up with people having hate sex. That's how you end up with people who are in very high-tension situations yeah. and you're not sure how it's going to go, but it's never going to go towards apathy. No, and when you write hero-villain... You need to have the villain on the page a lot, right? Which is the same as, I mean, the big romance, but the worst thing a romance novelist can do is keep the hero and heroine apart, Ugh, right? Because yeah. nobody yeah. wants to read those scenes. <laughs> you want to see them together. Yeah, there's a, there's, and I do feel like there's, you, you have to walk a very fine line, right? You want to keep them apart until people can't stand it. 
but like you don't want to keep them apart too long or else it dissipates the, yeah. the, the tension and the well, attraction. Well, you have to keep them apart emotionally. Yeah. And keep them on the page. You, got, you can't keep them apart. I mean, really, you can't. Yeah. So they have to be together all the time. But emotionally, Do you find yourself uh, watching TV or reading novels and just getting very frustrated with the arc where you're just like, you're TV. doing this love arc wrong. <laughs> TV and movies are really hard for, I think, every romance novelist. Yeah. You know, because romance, I mean, part of this is gaze, right? That is, it's valuable to talk about the fact that most literature and most film and most television is written from the, a very specific dominant gaze um you know cis hat white male gaze Mm -hmm. so the point where you can tell when an episode is directed by somebody who's not a cis white heterosexual man (laughs) yeah i'm thinking of like one of episode one of the episodes in season one of outlander where it became so obvious that it was a woman yeah that was guiding the movement and are you talking about the one where kind of like it happens in the castle It's yeah. so awesome. And you're like, wow, one, this is so much better, but also this is such an obvious. Oh, and like, like you would never see that. I have never, first of all, like that happened on screen and I was like, I don't think I've ever seen no. this from this but perspective. It really, like it shows you like how inured we get to a particular mm-hmm. kind of. Yeah. And then really just lets it down. Yeah. Well, I'm really wild about the show Harlots on Hulu, yes, oh my God. which I, I don't that. think gets very much attention at all, but it's, it's so cool great. Show. For anyone who doesn't know, it is, I, I'm obsessed with it. Yeah, it's set in the early 1700s, in, and it's like the London brothel wars. Like, it's yeah. about rival brothels, and there's, like, tons, but it's the, the, the um, crew, the cast, the um, the writers, everything. Soup to Nuts is like 90% women. Yeah. Of all different, diverse women, queer women. Tell. You can Yeah. Tell. My big thing now is I can tell when a writer's room does not match yeah. the show. Yeah. Like I'll watch something and I'll be like, it, it just feels wrong. You're like, yeah. this is your, your writer's room is neither the age nor the ethnicity nor the sexuality no. of the people that you're writing about. And it's obvious. And it's obvious. Yeah. And so I think what's interesting is anytime any show does love well, you're sort of like, what? <laughs> you're shocked. <laughs> what's you're happening? for them to do it badly. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. you're sort of like, this is incredible. Like, this is an incredible experience. And you really feel that you you feel, as a romance writer, you feel like seen. You're like, somebody cares, right? Is there anything else that you've seen or read recently that you just feel like was so refreshing because it felt closer in proximity? That's a really good... So, okay, I have been... I've been sort of shouting about this show, but Money Heist on Netflix, have you seen this? Um, So it's a Spanish show, and it's uh, the... I don't know, maybe 18 episodes. The first okay. season, the first arc is like 18 episodes long. And it's a, um, it's a heist. The It's a group of kind of heist. It's a heist movie, essentially, okay. where the group knocks over the Royal Mint of Spain. Okay. And so in the first episode, they enter the mint and take it over. And then it's like 10 days. I think they're inside the mint. Uh-huh. Um, and it's like the a cat and mouse between... Um, you know, obviously 
the 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 police and the heist and i love a heist movie for lots of reasons yeah. but also because whenever you again whenever you amp up conflict emotional conflict and stress yeah like characters in stress do bad things mm-hmm. and i like it when characters yeah. do bad things make bad choices me too and there are three love stories okay. in money heist that are all really different and I think all really done very, very well. Okay. I'm making notes now because now I have a show to watch. Um, but also, if you like a heist movie, it is perfection. I feel like one of the only people I've seen recently, showrunner, creator, that has like routinely impressed me in that way is like Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Uh, in that, like, if you, yes. so I, as a very gay woman, if you can make me care about Hot Priest that much, <laughs> I'm just like, Oh, we're in for emotional turmoil here. And so obviously good. and the first season of Killing Eve was like yes. an exercise in not only sexual attention, but in taking the unexpected road. Like it was playing with every expectation yes. that you plan on as a viewer. You're like, I've been down here before. I know they're gonna take a right turn. And every time you expected them to take a right yeah, turn, they, took, they a left. took a left. And yes. I was just like, Yes. So I'm constantly on the hunt for more shows that give me this feeling right yeah. this feeling like there is watch the person behind the camera and behind the pen understands is not just in a performative action but like really yes. understands the characters that they're writing yeah also i have to refill my box wine so keep talking okay no i was just gonna <laughs> say like as you talk about phoebe waller bridge i mean yeah we watched um i watched uh oh my god mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm why well, Fleabag? I? Yeah, I watched Fleabag. Sorry. Yeah. I watched Fleabag and then immediately watched it again. Yeah. Um, oh, because it was so brilliant. And then sort of at the end of the second one was like, well, she's an outlier because she's clearly a genius. Like, yeah. clearly yeah. we're watching. This is like any creator right now in 2020 I mean, watches like, that and thinks. Miranda, where yeah, like, like, we're, we're watching someone who's an exception to like, just like. I feel like she was born with it just in her. Like, it's not fair. In her. Like, I don't, I don't understand how she is so great at her job so consistently. You know. And then, Um, but I do think like that as well. And like, there are some shows out there that have like female written female labor where you're just like, God damn. Like, just very intense understanding. But I do feel like, I don't even, at first I was like, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is clearly just abnormal. And, and like, just a spat, just like a once in an- I mean, I do. I think she's kind of an outlier. (laughs) But I also, like, I I love that that weirdness made it. Like, because 90% 90 of the time it doesn't. Well, I mean, I do think there is something to be said for the fact that, like, all the things that we have name-checked at this point- have not been American. Exactly. Well, I was going to say, someone did mention, I will shout out Insecure by Issa Rae. So wonderful. But it's an HBO show. I yeah. love things that have, like, a bit more accessibility. But, yeah, Insecure, amazing. Amazing. Okay, I've been watching. I'm putting it on oh, my list. so good. Okay. But, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, but I think, like, there's something, I don't know, there's something also going on outside of, like, for example... This is not, I, I don't think, written by women, but Shit's Creek is, oh, did yeah. that for me, too. Like it, so here's it, the argument. It's things which are cost less money. And yeah. it's weirdly much the same way as some subgenres in publishing that are allowed to take greater risks because they're costing yeah. less to take yeah. them. Fundamentally. CBC and BBC get to put out really 
what is considered not risky, but like gets to dare outside of the very narrow box of what is success. Right. Because it costs so much less money and so much of the industry, especially in Hollywood, is so fixated or in publishing is so fixated on the safe bet that it becomes really mediocre because they don't take these chances. And then you see shows that cost very little that they get to take these immense creative chances. And you realize like, oh my God, what we could have. Exactly. If, if the powers that be were really willing to take those risks with things that were not middle of the road. Exactly. And I think, look, that's why independent publishing is changing the game yeah. because nobody has to take a risk. Yeah. So something that I want to ask about, because I want to bring us back to romance. Sorry, I can get on to media forever, but yeah, um, well, let's do it another week. (laughs) I know, right? Romance (laughs) is in a really interesting place in that I feel like all genres, all all creativity is reactive to its environment. But I want to ask you a little bit about how romance specifically reacts to time. You know, where did it start? And like, how does it, how do you really see these trends changing given what's happening in the real world. Sure. Well, we've talked a little bit, we, we talked sort of very briefly about speed. Yeah. Um, and I think speed is part of what drives romance as a social, con- like as a social um, genre. Yeah. So um, I, I'm going to do like the quick and dirty, like two minute history yeah. of romance because a lot of people don't know. Yeah. Um, so what we call in America, this, and this is a very American sort of lens, there's lots going on in the rest of the world, but um, what we call the first romance novel, modern romance novel, and what I mean by that is a romance novel that looks like this. Yeah. Or like has a picture like this on the cover, um, was published in 1972. Um, by Avon Books, which was not a division of HarperCollins. It was just a tiny little pulp fiction publisher. And they pulled a text, a, a manuscript off the slush pile by a woman named Kathleen Woodowis, who was married, um, mid, she called herself like a Midwestern housewife, mm-hmm. whose husband read a lot of advent- adventure novels. And she was reading his adventure novels and going like, why, can, why can't there be a woman taking this adventure and she wrote the flame and the flower which is a deeply problematic book but there it is like our roots are often problematic sci-fi fantasy etc so um she wrote the flame and the flower it came out in 1972 1972 is sort of a banner year for women in general Mm -hmm. in the united states um the equal rights amendment was before congress um, Gloria Steinem, who was like the pioneer of second wave feminism, stood up in front of the DNC that year and said, like, if the Democratic Party doesn't do more for women, it's going to lose women forever. Um, the women's rights movement was pushing forward. Um, Roe was about to happen. And suddenly, like, here's women having sex before marriage on page, sort of living a crazy, like, best adventurous life. Yeah. Um, and ultimately winning parody, partnership, the man, their own happiness, their own orgasms, like the whole nine. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah. And so and so there's lots to say about those early books, why they are as problematic as they are. I mean, the one thing that people always say about those books is they're so rapey, there's so much rape in them. And um, that's true, but also uh, in 1972, like, a wife in America could not legally be raped by her husband. So rape was a reality, as it still is, for a lot of married women. 
Um, and here was a text that was centering that experience and talking, like actually articulating it on the page. Like these choices probably wouldn't be made now, but they were made then I think for a reason. And it's not, this is not just my thought. A lot of academics feel this way. So then as we move forward, like in the eighties, we start to see women entering the workforce. We start to see women entering the workforce in, in books on the page, like running businesses, um, in the nineties, things start to be like, like, like there's, there was a economic downturn, but you know, generally women's, the women's movement was moving forward positively. Um, and so we started to see the rise of what we call the beta hero. The original cinnamon roll heroes came in the late nineties yeah. um, through the early thousands. And then in 2001, 9-11 happened mm-hmm. and, um, it was a kind of national crisis. And paranormal romance was born, literally, like, immediately following 9-11. The biggest paranormal series started to happen, and they happened in, in a massive way. I mean, these were women who were, the women who were writing paranormal romance in, like, 2002 to 2005 were, like, being bussed around the country on buses wrapped with their cover images, like, toured to 50 cities on a go, like, yeah. lines around the block. And it's because they had actually like harnessed that national fear and produced these like big, bad, rough, alpha, super alpha heroes who could literally save the world, but also take care of you in the balance. Yeah. And who that escapism and like sexual liberation at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And then in 2010, 50 Shades, uh, there was a, well, right before that, um, in 2008, there was a massive recession, which many people were calling a he session because men were losing their jobs at a higher rate than women were. So a lot of two-income families became one-income family with a woman as the provider, but it didn't change the fact that women in these houses, and of course, this is all very, like, heteronormative, but, like, yes. um, the women in these houses were starting, they had to both work and then also continue to do all the emotional work that women tend to do in those relationships. And so they were worried about everything, money, food, whether their kids did their homework, like who's going to clean up the kitchen. And 50 shades was the perfect, I mean, Christian gray. Yeah. He's real. He's a bad dude sometimes, but the reality is, is like he puts food in her fridge. He bought her a new car. He bought the company she worked for. So she didn't have to have a bad boss. Like this is magnificent. Yeah. And so the kind of constant iteration on the world is, um, is it's sort of undeniable when you start looking at it, especially because these books, because of, you know, the covers are very private. Like as somebody, somebody, I can't remember who it might be Sophie Jordan who said to me, like, of course there are, this basically is a big sign that says men keep out. Right. Like, and so these conversations were being had on the page often very overtly mm-hmm. with the reader. And so, you know, because romance moves so quickly, we're all sort of iterating the world constantly. You know, we're starting to see coronavirus on the page. We're starting to see, yeah. um, you know, Black Lives Matter romance. It's the fastest turnaround because it doesn't have like a two-year lag, right? It's yeah. immediate, very, very, very much a reflection of the world as it is in the moment. Yes. I mean, and it's interesting because even for traditionally published authors like me, you know, last night I was looking through something in Daring and there is a moment where somebody, like, there's a reference to police brutality in Daring. I didn't write that. I mean, 
I wrote that, you know, six months ago or eight months ago. And so, and it's just a con, it's whatever's going on in the world is pouring into the books the same way it pours into yours. It's just faster for us. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to me. And I think that it's one of those times when that rapidity of turnaround makes a much more direct mirror to the world in which it's speaking to. And I think yeah. in, in a way it makes romance a really fascinating reflection to study moving across time because it mm-hmm. makes for, a, as I said, a much better mirror, a way to assess like, okay, in 2007, what was happening that, that romance was reflecting against? Yeah. In 2017, what is happening that romance is reflecting against? It's a really anthropological study of yeah. the world. I mean, it's, it's, it's made in conversation with the immediate present. Yes. For example, um, Jen and I recently on Faded Mates, we, um, I don't think this episode is out yet, but we, we have been really interested in the fact that in the early 80s, those of you who, ha- who either were reading romance then or had moms or, or aunts or sisters who were reading romance then, a lot of those cat- what we call category romances, so Harlequin length, mm-hmm. 250 pages, um, those books often in those early books in the early 80s had heroes who were just who were vietnam veterans really and so we started getting really interested in like why this is like what that story is and i mean if you've done any research on the impact of vietnam on the home front in the united states in the late 70s and early 80s i mean of course these heroes were all Vietnam vets because they were really representing when those heroes unpack their emotions and sort of release their emotions. It's really a conversation that was being had about PTSD without overtly saying this is about PTSD. This is about loving, you know, a soldier who's come home from a war that maybe he didn't choose to go to. It's a really interesting... So now, of course, but I mean, that's because I think about romance literally all day. Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say, this is your world. You know, it's a really, really weird thing that I want to make sure that we hit on. And I want to just know if you have, so we talked, you talked a little bit about how uh, with the recession, all of a sudden there's like women who might've had more like traditional domestic roles. They're getting jobs. There's all of these different things that are happening. But I also like, there's one of the weirdest little quirks of romance is the percentage of romance authors who were lawyers. Yeah. Like the amount of romance authors who are either currently or previously lawyers. Right. What what do you think it is about, is it just the restriction, like the immense (laughs) intelligence and capacity for discipline meets the lack of creativity in that field? Like, what is it? I mean, literally so many of my friends are are former lawyers. Um, And honestly, I think for most of them, it's, for most of them, it is a sort of sense of we we escaped, like there, we escaped this very rigid profession. Um, But I also think like for many, for many people, I mean, law, if you go into law with an open heart, I think you are going into law, like with hope, right? That, you're going to do right in the world. Mm-hmm. And maybe law doesn't really end up making you feel that way, yeah. but writing a happily ever after really does make you feel that way. Yeah. Um, I think I don't, I've never written anything other than romance, so I don't know this to be true. From, mm-hmm. I don't know whether this is true of everyone, but like getting the email from the reader who's like, I have been, you know, in a terrible marriage or I have been, I have had a lot of hopelessness yeah. and like your books have made me choose mm-hmm. hope. 
right? Yeah. Believe that happiness can come. It, I deserve it too. Right? It's a positive impact. That's the covenant, right? Like you do deserve it. And these books are for you. And whoever you are, there is a romance that is about you. Yeah. Tessa Bailey likes to say, um, the best thing about romance is that when you pick up, when you wake up in the morning as a romance reader, you can say, who do I want to be today? And how, do, like, how yeah. can I live their life in triumph? And then you can go out and find yeah. a romance novel that's about that person and live that life in happiness. I love and, that. It's both a comfort and a liberation and an empowerment. And I also just love it because whenever romance gets shit on as a genre, I just get to point out to people, I'm like, do you realize like these are like the most intelligent, incisive minds? Like these are like, this is the thing, right? Is It, it is a staggering percentage compared to any other subgenre. Oh, yeah. And but I, I think it, it is because it, like in your heart, when you become a lawyer, you want to, you believe in right. Yeah. Oh, okay. We're running out of time, but I have to, we have to talk about titles. We have to. <laughs> okay. Like, I don't. Okay. Cause the only three that I wrote down of the many that you have is the one girl, one good Earl deserves another, the rogue by any other name, rogue, not taken. Uh, your new series has the brazen and the beast, um, wicked and the wicked wallflower and the daring and the Duke, which comes out on Tuesday. I mean, because it seems like it is one of the weird little quirks of the romance genre, how much it loves puns. Yes. Like, we love a pun. It's a very special level. Here's the thing. I really think romance, the best, the best, and sometimes worst thing about romance is that we don't take ourselves too seriously. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. the worst thing is a romance novelist who's like, you must think of my books as art all the time. Like, I want to be put up there with friends and yeah. right. Like, no, yeah. no, like, <laughs> these books are supposed to be fun. Reading arguably should be fun. Like yeah. life is too short for books that aren't fun. <laughs> and so, Agreed. so you um, think it's like a, a superficial reminder. Yeah. I mean, the story of nine rules to break when romancing a rake, which is the first ridiculous yeah. title I ever, you know, came up it. with. Um, is that we came up with it, my agent and I at the time, my agent was a YA agent who had no pull in romance at all. And she came up with it, we came, or we came up with it together because we thought in the subject line that would be so ridiculous yeah. that it would get the email opened. Yeah. And um, when, when that happened, I remember we sold the book and then I called my editor maybe two or three you know, months later. And I said, well, what's the title going to be? Because I thought like, surely it won't be this ridiculous yeah, title. Like yeah. someone at marketing will stop this behavior. And she was like, I don't know what you're, what you're saying. That's going to be the, that's the title. And then she was like, speaking of, I need you to title the next two books in the series. Oh my goodness. And they have to have numbers and they have to rhyme. So yeah. actually I lied to you when I said characters, although it was sort of characters because the characters were in <laughs> earlier books, but 11 scandals. I was like, you had it title. was the title that went first. Yeah. And I was like, all right, it's 11 but scandals. But I, I love that. <laughs> to be I've never scandals. actually thought about the fact that one of the most important tenets of romance in a kind of a non-shaming capacity is that you can't take it. You, you're not supposed to take it seriously. It forces no. you to embrace that you're having fun, that you're seeking self-care and you're seeking yes. escape. And, and, you know, so many people historically would call a subgenre like fancy or like where I'm gonna say guilty pleasure and like I've really pushed back on that notion because anything which serves sure. you which is self-care should not be called guilty and I feel like though I've never really considered that these wonderful fanciful titles almost warn you at the door like put yeah. your your high concepts of like 
you know, or your shame or your embarrassments about what you're reading aside, the cover forces you to do it. The title forces you to do it. Like embrace your self-care. This is for you. This is for you to have some joy in your life. Like, and, and take that joy as it comes. You know, we, I think also, you know, when you look at, I do think like with you, when you look, especially at thrillers, like thrillers are really modeled similarly, the titles, you know, my editor likes to say like, I want titles that tell a story instantly and leave the reader asking a question. Yeah. And same roles. And like that, the thriller, the thriller title is very similar. Yeah. Um, and, but also so many thriller titles are one word, right? Like, you know, and so you think about, you know, a great thriller title. I don't know. Like I'm thinking, I mean, the one that immediately came to mind was um, The Girl on the Train, right? Where it's like, all right, that tells me a story. My mind is already going like, what's going to happen to this girl on the train? Mm-hmm. And then it just all unravels from there. But it's also such like a punchy, like readers know exactly what they're getting. It came at the heart of that like girl title. Yeah. That thriller, the thriller and the romance novel really exists as flip sides of the coin of this like very honed genre where you, you as a reader know what you're getting, but you want to be surprised, right? You yeah. Be surprised about yes. how you consume it, but you're picking horror, thriller, and romance. I would say those three where there's a level of expectation that you're playing with and playing against. Well, it wouldn't work if you didn't know who did it or like whatever, what happened at the end of the horror or, you know, these two have to fall in love. It's about yeah. the journey. It's a structural play, right? In each one, you know what's going to happen in a vague sense. Yeah. Uh, the killer's going to get caught or the mystery's going to get revealed or, you know, there, there's going to be a happily ever after. And it becomes about, the, as you said, the journey to that point, you know, where, right. how is it going to happen? It's not, the mystery is not that it's going to happen. No. It's about how you're going to get there. And that's where the originality and the comfort and the fun and the, as a, it's weird as a reader writer, do you find this? I find as a reader writer, how I like it's much harder to impress me, but I get so happy when it is done. You know, <laughs> yes, like when something absolutely. has managed to surprise me in that yeah. way. Well, and also there's that sense of like the promise of it's hard, right? As a reader, yeah. writer, especially in genre, because you both want it the way you want it, yeah, and want to be surprised, right? So it's like you I'm writing a snowed in romance, right? So you know, like, you want it to be an only one-bed romance. Like, you want it. That's what you want. You want that moment. It's the promise of the premise. But then at the same time, like, you want to be surprised. So ro- yeah. romance, like, I always say it's ballet in a phone booth, right? I love um, that. I love rules that. are so rigid. Yeah. Um, and then you just don't <laughs> know you can pull it off. at the clock, and I'm very nervous that we're about to get cut off. Okay. Instagram rules are one hour. So we're going to try and get through this question. And if it cuts us off, I love you and you're amazing. Um, my last <laughs> Thank question you, same, is, same. if you could choose only one of your books to outlive you, just one, which would it be? To outlive me? Yeah, just um, one. I, ooh, ooh. Uh, the Day of the Duchess. The Day of the my Duchess. best book. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I suppose I should say, I think this new one is my no, best book. No, 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 no. But... <laughs> we're all going to pick this new one. Uh, it comes out on Tuesday. I am so excited. I love your work. My mother loves your work. Thank you. Um, thank you, Mom. <laughs> you are amazing. This has been such an incredible chat. I hey, come on the podcast. We come on the podcast and talk yeah, about... Yeah, happily, happily. Cool. All right. Uh, the podcast is called Faded Mates, and it's every Wednesday. Every Wednesday. Every Wednesday. Amazing. And the best way for people to listen to it on all podcast mediums, basically? It's everywhere. Everywhere amazing. you can find it. 
Amazing. So. Um, Sarah, you're you're incredible. Well, you are too. Thank you're you so much for having me. So like, thanks, yeah, this was thanks for the wine. This was the wine. I know I'm gonna go back. I'm gonna take my box of wine. I'm gonna carry <laughs> on Wednesday night. I hope that you have a wonderful Saturday. You too. Um, and I will be on the podcast. Yes, I'm gonna send you an email. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much, and thank you everyone Bye. for coming and joining thank us. Thank you. Today. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>